Welcome to this month's episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Podcast. The theme for this episode is upper GI bleeds, and we've got some fantastic guests with us today to have a really good discussion about these papers that we've brought. But I guess before we start, we'll go around the table and introduce all of our fantastic guests today. My name is Amanda. I'm one of the Emergency Medicine Advanced Trainees here at Westmead. I'll be your host. And I'm Shreyas. I'm going to be the other half of your host for this month and back for another episode. I'm Jack. I'm one of the emergency registrars at Liverpool Hospital. I'm Maria. I'm one of the Westmead advanced trainees in emergency medicine. I am Oksana Williams. I'm one of the ED staff specialists from Westmead and I have this lovely Ukrainian accent that you can identify me by. Uh, I'm Tim. I'm one of the gastroenterologists and I'm currently an endoscopy fellow here at Westmead Hospital. And I'm Baron. I'm a second year gastroenterology advanced trainee, and I'm excited that you guys are excited about upper GI bleeding. And I'm Kit. For those of you that have listened before, I'm sure we all know my corner. The first paper we're going to have presented by Dr. Jack Ashley. Thank you, Amanda. My paper was titled Superiority of Urgent versus Early Endoscopic Hemostasis in Patients with Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding with High-Risk Stigmata. The author was Horibe et al, who were based primarily in Tokyo, with a couple who were based in the USA. It was published on the 2nd of November 2021 in the Gastroenterology Report. The researchers sought to answer the clinical question whether in patients with upper GI bleeding with high-risk stigmata, is there further benefit of urgent, meaning within six-hour endoscopy, as opposed to early intervention, up to 24 hours, as is recommended by the guidelines, and in terms of 30-day mortality. With high-risk stigmata, or HRS, defined as one of peptic ulcer disease that was spurting, slash gushing, slash oozing, slash bleeding, or a non-bleeding visible vessel that was 1A, 1B, or 2A in the forest classification, baricyl hemorrhage with active bleeding or evidence of recent bleeding found, or other sources of bleeding that are identified as spurting or gushing. So essentially having one of the more severe upper GI bleed pathologies. Some context as to why I chose the paper. I've had a few experiences with patients with upper GI bleeding in which they deteriorated quite quickly and catastrophically. So I now often find when I see patients with upper GI bleeding, they feel a bit like a ticking time bomb. So I was curious to see what the evidence says about mortality outcomes for scopes that are happening within that narrower six hour timeframe versus a 24 hour timeframe. Some background for the paper itself. So most guidelines regarding upper GI bleeding recommend early endoscopy within 24 hours for patients who present with symptoms of upper GI bleed. With endoscopic intervention for these patients ranging from argon plasma coagulation, cautery, clips, band ligation, adrenaline injection, or sclerosin injection. Now there has been a fair amount of research to determine if there is evidence to narrowing this window. Notably, there was a randomized control trial by Lau et al. that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020 that found no significant difference in mortality for patients who underwent endoscopy within six hours compared with six to 24 hours. Now, the same researchers of the paper I've chosen today previously developed and validated the Harbinger score, consisting of three variables to predict patients with high-risk stigmata, or HRS, including a shock index greater than one, the patient not being on a PPI for the preceding week, and a high urea to creatinine ratio with each criteria earning one point and two or more points deemed significant for HRS. Therefore, with the ability to predict a subgroup of patients with HRS, i.e. severe pathology, through this paper, they've set out to determine if this subgroup of patients with HRS that then receive endoscopic intervention within six hours end up having better rates of 30-day mortality compared to those scoped within 24 hours. So the study itself 
was a prospective cohort study. The population were patients with clinically suspected upper GI bleed who presented with hematemesis, coffee ground emesis, had nasogastric lavage with blood or coffee ground material, or had melina on history or PR. The patients were from three acute care hospitals in Japan and were sampled from 2008 to 2015 for one hospital and 2012 to 2015 for the other two centres. All three centres had a local policy of endoscopy within 24 hours. Patients with post-procedural GI bleed were excluded, and this ultimately left 1,966 patients included in the analysis. From here, patients were divided into two groups based on whether they had any findings of HRS on their endoscopy, as determined by experienced endoscopists who were blinded to the clinical information. The HRS group consisted of 886 patients and 1,080 patients were found to not have HRS. This HRS group was then further divided into those that received an urgent endoscopy, meaning within six hours, and there were 769 of these, versus early endoscopy, meaning between six and 24 hours, and there was 117 of these. It's not clear which factors impacted the timing of scopes that the patients received. As already stated, urgent endoscopy was defined as less than six hours and early endoscopy is six to 24 hours. The primary outcome was mortality from any cause within 30 days. So in terms of the analysis, the researchers used student T-tests, chi-square tests, Mann-Whitney U-tests, and Fisher's exact tests to determine statistically significant confounders between patients based on both mortality and then separated by who underwent early versus urgent endoscopy. They then used these statistically significant confounding factors that were identified to inform three multivariable logistic regression models. They then used propensity score matching to match 115 of the 769 HRS urgent endoscopy patients to 115 of the 117 HRS early endoscopy patients to again control for confounders. Interestingly, they also calculated the Harbinger score and the more commonly used Glasgow Blatchford bleeding score or GBS for each patient at admission. So in terms of results, after adjusting for confounding factors in the three models, urgent endoscopy in patients with HRS, high-risk stigmata, were significantly associated with lower overall mortality. This was replicated after propensity score matching. In patients who were not found to have HRS on their endoscopy, there was not a statistically significant difference in overall mortality between those that received urgent endoscopy versus early endoscopy. Now, the paper then included an analysis based on a Harbinger score, dividing the patients between those with a score of two or three out of three, comparing that to those who scored a zero or a one. So essentially looking at predicted HRS as opposed to endoscopically proven HRS. And they found that while there was not a statistically significant difference in overall mortality, there was a difference for upper GI bleed related mortality if these patients with a higher Harbinger score received urgent endoscopy. Overall, I think determining whether an urgent endoscopy is indicated based on endoscopically proven pathology is not that applicable to the ED clinician. However, given this paper seemed to be building on the researchers established Harbinger score, there may be a role for this score in predicting patients with HRS. And this paper has proved that patients with HRS do benefit from urgent endoscopy. But as is often the case with these scores, I don't know if it will alter my clinical practice all that much because I think it kind of reflects what we already do. While guidelines may recommend scoping within 24 hours, if the patient suggests that they need a more urgent scope, they might be hemodynamically unstable despite initial resuscitation or have symptoms of ongoing overt bleeding. They, in my experience, tend to get scoped on a more urgent basis. And these unwell patients who get these urgent scopes are intuitively more likely to be the patients harboring the high-risk stigmata in the end. Thank you, Jack. That was a really nice summary. Can you tell us what you thought about the methodology of the paper? And then we might broaden it to the table and people can chime in with their thoughts. Just the methodology, there was a few strengths. While it wasn't a double-blinded randomized control trial, I think in this case, it would be hard to ethically have a blinded RCT. 
I thought there was very thorough controlling for confounders reading through the analysis. However, there were a few weaknesses and most notably, there was a very small N, especially considering there was only 117 patients who ended up in the group with high-risk stigmata and receiving an early endoscopy. I agree. It's an observational study. And I agree that statistically, they did a really good job like trying to adjust for as many confounders as to why one group of patients got very early endoscopy versus non-early endoscopy. I guess the issue is though, I think there was a couple of confounders they didn't adjust for, which are really important. And that really is in terms of identifying patients that are clearly still actively bleeding. There was never any mention of therapy they got in terms of resuscitation. And if patients were or were not resuscitated, as you correctly identified, clinically, that's usually when we'll go in very early. And because this wasn't an RCT, the clinicians obviously decided when and when they weren't going to be taking them in really early. I imagine that would have been a big reason and they've not adjusted for that in terms of either clinically did they have ongoing hematemesis, were they still unstable despite resuscitation? And the other interesting thing is so that forest classification of stigmata, so they group it all as high-risk stigmata, but some of those are not actively bleeding. So one of them is actively bleeding, as they mentioned, where you've got a visibly spurting vessel or oozing vessel, but very often it's just that there's an overlying clot or there's a visible vessel that's not actively bleeding, which is actually, I think, very important that they probably should have broken that down. Because once again, the ones that were really early that may have done worse might have been the ones that when we went in, well, actually before we went in, they were actively bleeding. They were still having hematemesis. They were not responding to resuscitation. And then when we went in, there was an actively spurting vessel within an ulcer or whatever it was. And the other really important thing is they've lumped variceal and non-variceal bleeding together. That's a tricky one because they are, I think, two very separate cohorts, which I can talk about now or later in terms of what their mortality is driven by and also just the behavior of their bleeding varices versus a non-variceal cause. So lumping them together, I think, skews things a bit as well. And you'll see the guidelines reflect that. We have separate guidelines for variceal versus non-variceal bleeding because we recognize both pathology, endoscopic treatment, and the patient cohort are very different. Yeah, thanks for that, Tim. Just to add to that point, I think in this paper, all the patients who got their scope within six hours, as you mentioned, are patients who just got their scope within six hours under a policy of the scope needs to happen within 24 hours. And so you alluded to the one side of that, which is that you know the clinician might have said, actually, this patient is one who specifically needs this scope now, as opposed to a little later. But I want to talk about the other point, which is that many of these patients might have just been lucky. If you present to the ED at 7.30 a.m. on a Wednesday morning, your treatment in the hospital is very different from if you present on Friday at 2 a.m. And so I wonder if some of these patients just happen to be slightly lucky in the timing of their scope. Now, on that note, from a proceduralist point of view, I just want to know from both of you what your experience is of doing an endoscopy at 9 a.m. versus 9 p.m. versus 3 a.m. In an ideal situation, we would always like to do scopes in hours, mainly because of the amount of staff that are involved. When you have skeleton staff in the middle of the night, there's more issues that can occur and complications, which potentially cannot be fixed in the middle of the night. So in an ideal world, gastroenterologists prefer, you know, scopes to occur during in hours if possible. And that's for, you know, safety of the patient. So it's weighing up the risks and the benefits. And there's way more benefits if there's a lot more people around to help if needed. 
we know, for example, the studies of emergency physicians assessing their performance cognitively at the start of an evening shift versus at the end of an evening shift. And they demonstrate quite significant drops in cognition right at the end of a shift. How do you feel technically your endoscopy is at 3 a.m. versus at 9 a.m.? It depends how many times you've been called overnight. So I don't think there's a huge difference between 3 a.m. or 7 a.m. I agree. I think it depends on so many factors. But I think, you know, there's all those, I can't remember the studies where they've talked about fatigue and what blood alcohol level that's equivalent to. And so I think you'd have to say that everyone working in ridiculous hours in the morning will not be firing on all cylinders. The thing in public centres, though, too, is there is a lot of staff. There is always a trainee plus a consultant. So there is a multiple people as well that are there to improve neuron number. I guess all this is to say that while in this paper they may demonstrate a benefit to urgent endoscopy within the six-hour period, if you were to create a policy and translate that into the real-world setting and I start calling Varen in at 3 a.m. for all of the patients that I think might, say, have a Harbinger score greater than two, then we might actually lose some of that benefit because that endoscopy might not be the same endoscopy as the patient is getting in hours. And so that is potentially one limitation of the study. And I guess it reflects why we need an actual randomized intervention as opposed to retrospectively collecting data on something that's already happened because we can't know the reasons why things happened the way they are. And there's probably any number of unmeasured confounders that are involved. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing with observational studies, isn't it? They're not randomly assigned to an intervention. There was always a reason why one group had one, not the other, and you try your best to adjust as much as possible. And I think, as we said, there was probably just a few things they could have adjusted for that would have made it a bit more robust. But it's very hard when you've got a randomized trial that's only just been recently published that was of very good quality and has demonstrated. And interestingly, what that study excluded was patients who were actively bleeding clinically. So they didn't look at that cohort. So they were looking at everybody else because I think we all agree that if someone's clinically actively bleeding, they need an urgent scope. And as I said, I'm sure that's who got scoped in this group as well, very emergently as well. They excluded those in the RCT. So they looked at everybody else and then there they clearly found that there wasn't any benefit to going in earlier in those other patients. The only thing I want to add to this is that um, the reason probably that they've excluded this patient, I can't imagine it being ethical because they are your dying patients. They are your patients that will not make it in the next couple of hours and saying we will randomize you of not having a scope kind of uh, puts them in not a very appropriate ethical dilemma, I would say. Even in future, I can't see the randomized control trial for this group of patients. And I think from our point of view, they're the patients when we identify, they should be just going for their scopes. And I think the gastro team agrees with me that they're the ones that, that should be really trialing to randomize or manage any other way. Thanks, Oksana. That actually leads me beautifully onto my next point, which is the point of this paper and the thing that was novel about this paper as opposed to some of the other research was that they actually evaluated the impact of having high-risk stigmata on endoscopy on the subsequent outcome of the timing of the scope. And they demonstrated, as Jack said, that people with this high-risk stigmata were the ones who were benefiting in terms of sooner intervention. The interesting thing was, though, that none of the measures that they used to try and predict the patient who has high-risk stigmata were very good. 
the Harbinger score that they were advocating in the paper had a sensitivity of 66%, which is not really adequate for any clinical tool if, if we're using it unless it's highly specific, which it wasn't. Interestingly as well, patients with a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 even they only had a sensitivity of 70% when it came to high-risk stigmata. On top of that, those patients didn't actually benefit from urgent endoscopy. It leads me to question, was that sample diluted? Did they include every single patient who happened to just have an isolated reading of a systolic blood pressure of 90 at one point? Or was that group the you know, exclusively patients who were consistently sitting below 90 and the, patient, the group of patients who were potentially just sicker than all the others? And so that's why there wasn't a mortality benefit. I'm interested in everyone's thoughts as to how we're actually going to predict who's going to have high-risk stigmata. Once again, I think the high-risk stigmata is a broad group. There's multiple different things. I think what we can predict is the ones who have a high-risk stigmata being that of active arterial bleeding, because they're your patients who will have clinically ongoing hematemesis, ongoing hemodynamic compromise, despite good resuscitation. In terms of the other ones, very difficult. The Blatchford score was good at predicting re-bleeding and need for endoscopic intervention. And once again, I think the reason that's the case is criteria that Blatchford use. They look at a few things. In addition to hemodynamics, they look at your hemoglobin drop. They look how high your urea rise was. These are all just, you know, surrogate markers of just how much blood has been deposited in the GI tract. And, and that's what the randomized trial looked at as well, was patients with a Blatchford over 12, where they clearly by having that score did tick a lot of the boxes, not just hemodynamics, but yeah, as I said, hemoglobin, big urea rise, things like that. So I think that is in one way, a good way of predicting those other markers. But I think the whole thing is predicting those patients who clearly have ongoing active bleeding, because the important thing is knowing one, why do patients die? From upper GI bleeding because we know that upper GI bleeding patients have a higher mortality than lower GI bleeds because they keep saying this 30-day mortality and I'm sure you guys are wondering why are we looking that far down the track their 30-day mortality when all this bleeding is very acute and it's because we know that a lot of their mortality is driven by their other comorbidities once they've had the bleed and the stress of that bleed in particular things like ischemic heart disease and then the cardiac strain that results from having a bleed so that's why we often go out to 30 days because that's one of the big things that drives mortality rather than dying from bleeding. It's the hospital stay. And I think, you know, Varan, you'd agree when these patients are under our care, a lot of them are not discharged within 24, 48 hours. They end up being in hospital for quite a while because often they start to run into a lot of other problems with their heart failure, their ischemic heart disease. So I think that's one really important point is what drives the mortality. And the second thing is, from an endoscopic point of view is what do we actually do when we do an endoscopy? Why do we do it? And really it's for two reasons. It's to either stop active bleeding or to stop this idea of re-bleeding because we know the pathology can dictate if patients can bleed again. And that's the key thing during my training I was always thinking about is, well, the reason I'm going to do a scope is for those two reasons. And acutely, the thing I really want to know is, am I going in to stop active bleeding? Or am I just going in because I don't think they're actively bleeding, but I need to make sure we juice their risk of re-bleeding. And the thing that drives their re-bleed risk is that high-risk stigmata. Once you go in and you find the pathology, and a lot of this is around ulcers, the forest classification, if you find an ulcer and it's got one of those high-risk stigmata, we know that they have a very high risk of re-bleed, which is why we actually go in and endoscopically treat. And I think it's a good context for, for you guys to know that very often these patients not the ones we go into really quickly because they're bleeding. All the other patients, it's so common that we'll go in, they're not actively bleeding, we find an ulcer, 
there's not even high risk stigmata. It's a very clean ulcer. We don't do anything. The patient doesn't need any endoscopic intervention. Then there's that other group that have one of those high risk stigmatas and we do treat it with various endoscopic methods. And that is for the reason of protecting the patients against rebleed. I think it was good to just know those two things on mortality, what drives it, and also why do we actually go in and scope them and what benefit does it offer? Jack, did you have a comment? Yeah, I wanted to touch on the halving score, which as Strauss was saying, actually ended up having quite a low sensitivity from that previous study. That was one of my major issues with the paper was the potential source of bias with these researchers kind of attempting, from my point of view at least, to validate their own halving score further, especially because it wasn't really in the clinical question they set out to prove. And then reading the paper, it seemed like it popped up out of nowhere. There was this paragraph in the results. Turns out they'd analyzed the halving score and they included and they analyzed the groups based on the halving score. And then they analyzed it in terms of not just all-cause mortality, which Tim's just pointed out why that's so important. They analyzed it in terms of upper GI bleed, specific related mortality to get a significant result. And again, that wasn't the primary outcome that was established initially in the paper. So it just, to me, there was red flags going off that there's potential bias here in this paper. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Sort of moving on a bit more broadly, could you maybe talk to us a little bit more about what you actually see when you do an endoscopy in the context of someone who's having a hemorrhage or having a significant GI bleed or very recently had a significant GI bleed? And also, what are your actual management options in that context? When we do a gastroscopy and someone's actively bleeding, what we try and do endoscopically is try and find out where the source of bleeding is. And sometimes that's not as straightforward as you think it might be because there are some situations when we go in and it's just big clots, blood everywhere. We can't actually identify where it's coming from. And often we have to move the patient around to move the clot away or try and wash the clots away to try and find where the source of bleeding is. Once we find where the source of bleeding is, I mean, there's multiple causes for bleeding, as you know, but typically we usually see ulcers more than anything else. We determine the risk of that ulcer. So we kind of use the forest class classification in our minds to a point. And based on that, we decide whether we endoscopically treat it or not. And usually we try and employ at least two out of three or four methods in order to treat them. So the methods that we can employ is one, we can inject adrenaline. So we inject adrenaline around the area, which allows for a bit of blanching and suppresses the bleeding to a point. It also raises the ulcer a bit, so it makes it easier for us to do further definitive treatment. We can cauterize, so we can actually just burn where the vessel actually is. A third option is using clips. Previously, we had clips which weren't definitive in some ways. I wouldn't know how to explain it, but now we've got a VESCO, which has really changed the game, which is like a real big clip that can actually really stop these big bleeds to a point. Those are the main things that we can employ when patients are actively bleeding. And the other thing is varices, which, as I said, are a whole different kettle of fish, but generally same principles. Often if they're actively bleeding, there's just blood everywhere and it's an the whole focus at the start is just trying to identify the source and then that's all about banding where we actually put this cap over the scope and then we park it over the varix that has the high-risk stigmata or is actively bleeding and then we basically suck the varix up into the scope so you basically get this red out of the varix over your camera and then we deploy a rubber band over the top of that and that basically helps decompress the varix if it's a gastric varix, they're pretty scary things when they're up in the fundus and we actually inject glue. It's a certain type of glue that goes into the varix. They can be quite tricky. And then the other thing is if we just can't control the bleeding, which can happen, that's when we use Sengstarkin tubes. And those patients, like often you guys actually will 
put those in as well in ED if you've got very, very unstable patients who are periarrest, Senstarkin, inflate the gastric balloon and tamponade it up on the COJ. And then that just kind of temporizes things. You can get your patient stable in a critical care setting and then will always like that can only stay in for a very brief period of time. And those patients will then always have the balloon decompressed. And then you will go back in and endoscopically then try and in a more controlled situation, do the same principles of either banding or injecting. And sometimes we use bands on other pathologies, Mallory Weiss tears, if they're just continually bleeding, you can sometimes pop a band around that. And the thing Vera mentioned about the clips. So the old clips that we often use for ulcers are like alligator, like alligator clips. And the problem with ulcers is they're often quite fibrotic in the bed. So trying to pull that together, you can appreciate can be a bit challenging. Whereas these Avesco clips work on the same principle as banding where we actually suck the ulcer up and then we deploy this clip right over the top. There's been great trials with those as well. So that that is a, another thing we use. And the final thing is we've got stuff called hemospray, which came out of, I think it was Iraq or Afghanistan, the military found in them. It's basically like that Deb mashed potato stuff. Like it's basically starch. We just deploy a catheter down the scope and you just spray this starch and it just hemostases everything. It's, it's another really good temporizing measure and you can come back later in a more controlled situation. But yeah, there's lots of, lots of things now we can endoscopically do. Thanks, Tim. On that note, I just wanted to know, is there a higher risk of complications when you do a scope on someone within six hours after a GI bleed? Before this study we looked at today, there's been a number of observational studies in addition to that randomized trial. And the whole problem is there's been conflicting results around all these observational studies. Some have shown benefit, others have shown no benefit, and some have actually shown detriment to going in too early. And the whole reasoning behind that is we, we think that's because we're sending undercooked patients into a procedure so then they're undergoing anesthesia when they're not adequately resuscitated once again these patients probably have other comorbidities where you really want things as optimized as you can those few observational studies even though they're not coming out of the randomized trials that's what's driving our guidelines at the moment to unless you're in a situation where you clearly have to go in and stop what is active bleeding it's better to delay things a little bit we know that those studies showing 24 hours. 24 hours is a good cutoff. We really do try to aim to have most upper GI bleed scope within their first 24 hours of admission for those reasons that have come out of the data. But outside of that, that really acute scoping, unless you really have to go in, our governing bodies think the safer thing is to actually wait, optimize your patients. And then not only are they more medically optimized, you're probably going in in a more controlled situation, which will have better outcomes as well. There has been a bit of a variability in the research. There's the New England Journal trial that's been fairly extensively cited that, you know, obviously had the exclusion of the particularly critical patients who were bleeding. And then there's been a number of other observational studies that have shown, you know, some have shown some benefit, some have shown harm, some have just been neutral. How do we rationalize that into our practice? I think as a senior ED physician, to me, it's, quite clear when they're dying from bleeding. And it will be very clear to the senior gastroenterology team who needs to have this scope. The gray area is always going to be a gray area. And sometimes you make a right decision and sometimes you make a wrong decision. 
and there may be the people that could have further randomized controlled trials, but I think people who are exsanguinating from bleeding from a GI, and they're the scary ones. They're the ones that stay with you for the rest of your life. You will know them. You will really don't need that many clues that will be very, very obvious. If there's a big puddle of blood all around the patient and he is looking white, he needs his scope. And that's, I hope you guys agree on that kind of determination who needs to have it urgently and who you're probably not going to say try to resuscitate further but the gray area honestly I don't have a really good sort of decision on how to delineate these people for early scope I find that the people who make those decisions they usually have enough experience and based on that that's probably always the physician decision is the most accurate compared to any of the trials or scores Another set. Sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you get it wrong. And maybe in future, some of the trials and as a developing scoring system might help us with that. Exactly. And from a practical viewpoint, for those grey ones, I think the key thing is then once they're coming into the hospital, disposition, disposition, disposition. Where are they going? Who's watching them? And it's making sure these patients are watched very closely because they will declare themselves. So they mightn't be riskly bleeding and exanguinating, but they might still be actively bleeding. And if you have them in the right place, getting the right observation, it will become clear very quickly if they're deteriorating and it's clear that something is still actively bleeding. So that's the main thing is if it's not obvious at point zero on presentation, it's making sure they're watched closely. Yeah. And for those gray ones, you know, if adequate resuscitation has occurred and they're still unstable, that's my trigger to be like, yep, we need to take them up. So that's kind of my simplistic way of looking at it. We've got a variety of senior clinicians around this table. I'm just interested in what worries each of you other than the patient who's actively hosing blood. Which patient concerns you? For me, I'd probably say that the patients who are anticoagulated are a big red flag. Any, any others? For me, it's the cirrhotic, decompensated, probably still drinking alcohol. Those are the ones that I get very concerned about. Yeah, I agree. Cirrhotics. And just very comorbid patients, in particular cardiovascular disease, they're the ones who can just suddenly go into acute heart failure and really deteriorate quite promptly. And with cirrhotics, I didn't mention before, the key thing is to, they often don't die of the bleed, they die of sepsis. And that's why they all get keftriaxone at presentation. That's why they're, once again, a very different cohort. They get translocation from their bleed and they very, very high risk of getting sepsis. And we find that very often We've scoped them, the bleeding stopped, that's all sorted. And then lo and behold, they deteriorate, their liver function drops off because they go septic. For me, I agree with our gastro team. The ones that died that I am been involved with were cirrhotics and they haven't done well. The ones that I manage in intensive care when I worked there as a senior registrar, again, they were all cirrhotics. The ulcers usually not as horrendous. And yes, they can have a significant bleeding, but they manage to pull through it. Well, with cirrhotics, usually what happened in my experience, they would come in, they get some bending, they're still bleeding, or they restart bleeding a day or two later. They had every possible transfusion under theirs given to them and nothing is working. And that at some point we just give up and they get palliated. For me, it's the patient with no functional reserve. So it's the comorbid patient who takes my time away. I think we've talked a little bit about kind of what happens down the track once they're on the ward and how... They get worse and what causes them to die. But for me, acutely in the ED, 
I agree with what's been said that we should differentiate between the stigmata. Some of them mean you've got to go and do something right now. The others, the non-actively bleeding visible vessel, the adherent clot, give me time and the patient without functional reserve takes my time. I can't actively resuscitate the patient. I can't have those six hours to optimize them for their endoscopy to give them the best chance at the best outcome. What worries me is the patient in that gray zone. So who doesn't earn themselves an instant resus bed, who's come in with a pretty good history of melina or maybe some hematemesis, wasn't unstable at triage. You haven't got bloods back on them yet. They're back in the weight room and you know, they're probably going to be sitting there for four, six, maybe even eight hours where they're not getting their hemodynamics monitored hourly to hourly. It's going to happen every four hours. So that switch and that deterioration is not going to get picked up. And we know these pathologies have that high potential to be dynamic, that high potential to turn catastrophic. So those are the ones that worry me that I don't get to see with one-to-one nursing in a very sport environment that I'm looking at a screen and watching on the tracking list while they sit in the weight room. Because again, the current state of South Wales health is bit block and this is happening all too commonly in Ds. They're the ones that worry me the most at the moment. That's an excellent point. And this is certainly one of the groups of patients where you're going to be nagging your nom and your navigator and being like, we need to get them inside. After all this discussion, I think you should all listen to the episode on access block. Very, very interesting and very uh, enlightening. I agree with everything that's been said so far. My experience, again, has been the cirrhotic patients that have been horrendous to manage. Anyone that's sitting there for a prolonged period of time not getting the hemodynamic support that they need or the the optimization that they need pre-scope. And I think there's this conceptualization that maybe ED will do all of that. We do it reasonably well, I think, but we have so many competing interests, so many competing patients that often people probably don't get as well managed, even in resus beds, unfortunately, as we could. I'm talking a lot about the patients who are comorbid, particularly with cardiovascular problems. I've had it quite often, actually, with the GI patients that I've experienced or had to deal with in the ED who are in that gray area. They quite often come in with a GI bleed that is a slow bleeder, so probably an ulcerative bleed, but then they've had a secondary NSTEMI or some sort of MI contributing to that presentation. I remember being an ICU SRMO and having a consult in the ED where we had a GI bleeder who was, you know, I wouldn't say hemodynamically stable, but probably as stable as you're going to get for those patients in the gray area, you know, holding their blood pressure, but it was low, maintaining their heart rate, but it was a bit on the higher side. And I had the gastro fellow, the cardio fellow, the gastro consultant and the cardiology consultant all stood in the same room and we couldn't agree on, the patient was accepted to ICU. We just needed an admitting doctor knowing whether this patient was going to go to angio first, then to scope or whether they would go scope versus angio. I just wanted to know what your opinion on that was. I would say in that instance, it would nearly always be a non-STEMI, in which case it would be a type 2 MI, yep. which will be demand ischemia. Yep. I would have always thought, stop the bleeding. And part of that though is transfuse them. So yep. get their supply up. So their demand supply yeah. is matched. And then knowing that endoscopy needs to happen and the other key person, all that would have been the anesthetist, what their thoughts are and when they would be happy to anesthetize the patient, because that would be who we'd turn to pretty much straight away. We would say, we'd very quickly make the distinction. Do we think this patient's actively bleeding or not? doesn't sound like they probably were actively bleeding. Yeah, it was a slower bleed. So we'd say, okay, they must be optimized, especially given what's happening. They've clearly got significant cardiac disease and they're now having a type 2 MI. So we need them optimized, which would be my opinion, more resuscitation and transfusion to improve their supply. And then with that case, stop the bleeding, make sure that, because the thing is, what's cardiology going to do? The thing that they've got in their arsehole is anticoagulation. Exactly, that's why I asked the question, yeah. 
for us, it's how about we go in and if we've got the patient optimized, go in and then see what pathology we're dealing with, what's the risk of re-bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. And then we can much more accurately give the information the cardiologist will be wanting when they're embarking on what any coagulation, what revascularization yeah. strategy, et cetera, et cetera. So STEMI be a whole different, that'd be really tricky. That'd be that, very, very But that would be very unusual to be having yeah. a STEMI bleeding. That The situation's nearly always, it's a type 2 MI. Yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't be the first one that we've seen recently, though, with the STEMI and GI bleeding. And that is a useful reminder that we actually do pursue higher hemoglobin targets in the patient with ischemic heart disease. And we want to aim for that hemoglobin of 100 with pretty cautious fluid management in case they have heart failure. In terms of the STEMI situation, it would be very interesting as to the morphology of the ECG, because I've certainly seen a STEMI in the context of critical anemia, but it was the anemia and it's that sort of global cardiac ischemia ECG with the ST elevation, AVR, and widespread ST depression, which is an entirely different thing to a regional picture on the ECG, which is much more suggestive that there's actually a lesion in the heart that is causing the problem as opposed to the lack of hemoglobin. One final point is that patients who've had an operation in the mediastinum, that's a patient that is also extremely concerning to me. Probably one where we need to have a slightly wider input and get the GI surgeons or the general surgeons involved. And I'm reflecting on this because of a case that I had when I was an SRMO of a patient who'd had a previous Ivor Lewis esophagectomy and ultimately had an aortoenteric fistula. Now, this was the scariest GI bleed I've ever seen and presented in the classic herald bleed followed by a complete disaster in which even the MTP wasn't keeping her blood pressure up. I guess that leads me to ask, and really, this is more of an interesting question in the context of those slightly borderline patients and or maybe the patients who are acutely actively bleeding, but maybe have slightly more stable hemodynamics. What's the role of CT angiography? I would say in that patient that you just identified. So patients who've had intervention, whether that's us, we've done some endoscopic resection, or if they've had, as you said, more invasive stuff with mediastinal, like, yeah, if, if there's any history of that and thinks of an enteric fistula or enteric fistula, that's, yeah, that's angio. But otherwise, you know, and I think like we're obviously talking about PPIs a bit later, PPIs, endoscopy, the cirrhotics, how we manage those with endoscopy and um, octreotide and things. Most other things will be managed with medical plus minus endoscopic management. But yeah, as you've identified, there is that group of patients. And I think it's the ones where your concern could have a fistula or if they've had something done by us, like some big resection or something. And the take-home point for that would be just contact the endoscopist who did the procedure very promptly and we'd make those decisions because we'll know based off what we did, if something is bleeding, do we already know in our minds that that would be very difficult to endoscopically stop? In which case we'd be saying we want IR to just stop bleeding. But um, I wouldn't be just routinely all upper GI bleeds going in doing CTAs. Lower GI bleeds, whole different story, but upper GI, we know that medical and endoscopic therapy works really well for most pathologies. It's just that really small cohort. Is there a reason why CT engine not as good for upper GI compared to the lower GI? If we are like three o'clock at night and we're desperate, will they be able to help more or not really? It's mainly because endoscopically, we're very good at managing upper GI bleeding. We can nearly always, even as we said, it can be challenging sometimes to find this, but we will usually find the source and then can do something. The challenge with lower GI bleeding is you're trying to do a colonoscopy, which is technically more involved than just 
putting a tube down into the stomach. You've got to try and get around to the cecum. That's then compounded by the fact that you'll have blood everywhere, precluding your views. So trying to get there with limited views and then often the pathology itself is coming from a diverticular or something and you're basically looking at a block of Swiss cheese in front of you and there's clots in every single diverticular and you just go, which one, you know, it's, it's really, so I think that's more what it is. It's that what we can do in the lower GI is more challenging to identify the source and then not just that get to the source. Whereas now endoscopy, you're straight into the stomach within five seconds and then you're there and it's just a case of, we know where it's going to be. It's somewhere in here and then you can find it and then treat it. From my perspective, the only thing I'd add to that is the cases where there's uncertainty. So perhaps they've had a couple of hematemeses, but it's not been particularly large volume, or maybe all they've presented with is pain, but you know, the blood pressure is a bit low and they don't look very well, or, you know, they've actually had some Molina, but again, it's not that, that big. And you're just not quite sure, is there a bunch of blood that's inside that hasn't come out yet? And also where is the actual bleed? Is it upper? Is it a mid gut bleed? And I think the CT angio is quite useful for delineating that. I've had a few interesting cases where we found bleeding where we perhaps weren't expecting it. So CTA for undifferentiated bleeding, we'll say that. I mean, another good point with that is you have the patient who comes in, they're unstable, they've had a hemoglobin drop, they're bleeding. Where are they bleeding? Oh, they're on NSAIDs. Maybe they had this dark stool. There's no urea rise. They had a vomit, but we don't think it was hematemesis. They're on warfarin. You CT them, oh, they've got a massive retroperitoneal bleed. That would be one time we would say do a CTA where we're not convinced from the clinical picture that it's coming from upper GI. A good rule of thumb is, for you to have a hemoglobin drop, so you've already dropped at least 10, if not 20 points, so that's what, two units of blood, that just doesn't sit in your GI tract. It comes out, be a laxative in your lower gut, it will come out quite promptly. And if it's in the stomach, it will not stay there. It, it'll come up. You, you don't have occult, frank GI bleeds. Also with the CTMA, it's obviously a very useful test, but the only use of it is if there's actually an active blush. And more often than not, there isn't. Usually, you know, we do a CTMA, the chance of actually finding an active blush is lower. And then it involves time to organize interventional radiology. And then by the time they actually reach there, there's no blush anymore. So I think CTMA does have a role, but it also has its limitations as well. The other time you might see us use it is if we've scoped someone already, we now know what the pathology is and say they've got big duodenal ulcer that's sitting right above their GDA so that thing hoses and we've gone in, we've done intervention and now we know in our minds further endoscopic intervention will be very tricky if not very successful. And we might already have decided then if this patient bleeds again, they will go to CTA. And that's because that's a very targeted situation. And often in that situation, we help the radiologist by putting a clip close by so they know where to target. Amazing. Thank you. I think we might sort of wrap it up there. What I'll get from you, Jack, is there any take-home points you'd like to share with us other than the fact that diverticular look like Swiss cheese? One, uh, I don't think there's that much clinical use, especially in ED, of knowing if urgent scopes are indicated based on what ends up being endoscopically proven significant pathology or high-risk stigmata until we develop endoscopic vision. So we need to suspect patients of having these high-risk stigmata based on their clinical picture and allow this to guide the need for scope urgency. Two, as is established in an ideal world, everyone would have an urgent scope, but logistically working within the real world public health system, that's not going to be practical. So again, this needs to be based on the patient's clinical picture. 
And I don't think this paper ended up informing that decision, particularly as it failed to highlight who underwent an urgent scope based on unstable hemodynamics and ongoing bleeding. And finally, my takeaway as a junior ED registrar reading around this topic was that in most cases when urgent endoscopy is required, we're talking hours, not minutes. And there is most often time to focus on your resuscitation first and scope second. And I find that very reassuring. So that brings us to the end of our first segment. Thank you everyone for tuning in. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can email us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Everyone stay safe and we will be back in your ears soon. So please don't go, please don't go. Oh guy, you look so delicious in that long dress. Oh guy, you save me, you save me from the past I left.